0: Hello. Welcome back to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Uh, Today we are going to be talking about nutrition for cramps. This is episode four. And as we're talking about nutrition for cramps, we're going to be specifically referring to the types of cramps you get related to exercise, so training, sports, whatever. Leah, would you like to run us through the two main theories we've got in relation to cramps and why they occur?
1: So there are two main theories regarding why cramps occur. The first one is the most widely accepted by the general public and the one you will likely hear about talking about cramps just with anyone. Um, And that's the dehydration electrolyte imbalance theory. So it has been very widely accepted for a while and it's only now that... Uh, researchers starting to refute this particular theory. But basically, the definition is that there is some kind of imbalance of electrolytes and hydration of, of some kind that occurs during training or during an event that leads to cramping. The second theory has become more of the predominant theory in the past couple of years with researchers and professionals working in this space. And that's the neuromuscular fatigue theory. The theory is that the overuse of a certain muscle beyond what it is capable of or used to uh, does cause a neuromuscular uh, type of fatigue that results in an imbalance in excitatory impulses that leads to cramping.
0: For sure. And I would say that both theories have some form of merit. I would just say that amongst elite athletes and what's really happening in practice under race conditions and stuff like that, it seems to be more common to be neuromuscular fatigue, but both of them are still relevant, as in both of them can be an explanation for cramps and they might even both play a role together. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is kind of support for the electrolyte imbalance theory, why certain people believe it exists um, and how it could be relevant. So basically the first thing that is relevant is that cramps are more common to occur when it is humid and hot. And that's part of how like that could play a role in dehydration and stuff like that. Although that is also, to a certain degree, supporting the other theory because you get fatigued more easily when it's hot and humid as well. So it's, it's support for both theories, but that's one of the factors. They are more common when it is hot. Another factor that is also relevant is that when people do have deficiencies of electrolytes in their blood, they are more likely to cramp. That is a clear-cut kind of factual statement. Um, electrolytes in blood is a bit rarer amongst elite athletes though. So like that's part of why we're talking about it not being overly relevant for elite athletes. And one of the things that really kind of backs up this theory and what really I think might have been one of the early things that kind of kicked it off is in the 1930s, there was a study that came out that basically showed, they, they basically got their participants to set them up for cramping. They, they really, they gave them hot baths, made them sweat a lot, low sodium diets are pretty much no salt and they got them to drink heaps of water. So really high sweat rates, heaps of water coming in, no electrolytes. And basically everybody in the study started cramping. So we know once again, as a bit of a factual statement that if you put yourself in those conditions, you're probably going to cramp and to make like really put a nail in the coffin within 15 minutes of consuming salt, they stopped cramping. So that's part of why a lot of people talk about salt or sodium as a factor. So there is like if you put yourself in a really severe conditions, like yes, it's likely to do that. That also another example I hear a lot of people talking about is miners. Back in the day, miners working in really hot conditions, if all they were doing was drinking water, they were likely to get cramps. So sometimes they're encouraged to have high salt foods to avoid getting cramps. So once again, under pretty rough situations or circumstances, it's going to happen. But did you want to talk about um, did you want to talk about reasons why it might not be relevant for elite athletes and stuff like that, or reasons against electrolyte imbalance theory being the most predominant theory?
1: So, in research, athletes who cramp on average do have a similar fluid and electrolyte balance to athletes who who don't cramp. So, clearly, it's not as simple as just being an electrolyte imbalance or a dehydration issue, because we are seeing athletes who are cramping, but their hydration is there, and they don't have an electrolyte imbalance. So it's really not that simple. If fluid and electrolyte balance was the main issue, the simple answer would just be to consume adequate fluids, uh, get adequate uh, electrolytes in with those fluids, and then cramping would no longer exist. But we know in practice that that's just not the case.
0: Yeah, 100%. And something else I was going to touch on a little bit later as well, but jumping the gun on that is like, a lot of elite athletes, if, if it's an endurance event that we're talking about, they're often taking some form of sports supplements. They're probably having something like Powerade, Gatorade. They're probably having gels and stuff like that, which don't contain zero electrolytes. They have some form of electrolytes in there to kind of like help from that perspective. And on that topic as well, just thinking it through, if it was that simple solution of just like you just have more, more water and you have more electrolytes and it solves it, this would be an easy win. This would be the easiest job I'd have. It'd be be
1: so easy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It'd just be, Hey, drink some Gatorade and drink the thirst and you will you'll no longer cramp, but we know that's just not the case.
0: Yeah. And going at the other end of the spectrum, like looking at the neuromuscular fatigue theory, um, there is a lot of support for that. And it it seems pretty obvious once you, not obvious, but like once you kind of understand or think of it from this perspective, you start seeing it everywhere. Um, When training load loads increase, Cramps are more likely to happen. The best example of this is like pre-seasons for sports and stuff like that. If you look around sports and you see pre-seasons, a lot of people cramp in their pre-season. There is one study I'm going to reference um, that involved American football players and four-week training study of training camp. And in week one, 37% of athletes cramped. In week two, 27% cramped. Week three, 18% cramped. And week four, 4% cramped. That's, it's such a clear-cut kind of thing. You see it in the NRL, you see in like round one, people are so much more likely to cramp than in later rounds. Like it's just being prepared for the activity, reduces the likelihood of this fatigue occurring and stuff like that. And also going back to like if it was an easy fix, like it just wouldn't happen that much in pro sports. Like an example, and Leah included this when she was writing a blog post on this, but like LeBron James won one NBA, I believe it was in the playoffs, like one game. He cramped really badly. It, it people talked about it being there's like a bit of a myth. I don't know if you call it a myth. There's a bit of a conspiracy theory going around that like I think it was the San Antonio Spurs. They made the building really hot, and that was the day that he cramped. Um, if there was such an easy solution, somebody who reportedly spends like a million dollars on his body, like um, looking after it, surely he'd like have a powerade or something like next to me if it was just as easy as like electrolytes and hydration like it it is a pretty pretty difficult one is there anything you want to touch on that lee or did we just want to go straight to the strategies that you could use to try and minimize cramping
1: yeah so i think now that we've covered both of the the things that can cause cramping in certain situations probably good to move on to strategies uh Outside of nutrition, you you really want to prioritize being prepared for the session or the event you are going to do. So it really comes down to training for preparedness. Um, If you're not prepared, you are likely to cramp. So from that neuromuscular fatigue theory, we know that a fatigued muscle is more likely to cramp due to the imbalances in those impulses that are sent from the brain to the muscle. So generally being fit is, is going to be the best thing you can do f- to avoid cramping.
0: Yeah, and being prepared for the specific event. Like, for example, if somebody's going to try and run a marathon and they're fit but they're not, like, marathon-level, like, prepared, it's probably likely to happen there. These large increases in workloads and stuff like that is where it's likely to happen. Same as like, i see them triathletes where they like prepared really well for one event, but not for another one. Um, that's where it's likely to happen. And one caveat that I also want to add on this, and it's part of why I personally went down this rabbit hole a little bit quite recently, is I'm working with a higher level cyclist who cramps every second race. He's obviously doing everything he can to prepare for these races, but he's still cramping. And he's aware it's his biggest problem, but it's still happening, which is why I want strap hole to be like, is there anything else we can do? And I, I don't think it's that clear cut that's just like, oh, if you're working hard and you're preparing, it still happens. There's nothing you can do from a training perspective. I think there's still stones unturned. Like when I was looking, there's like talk about static stretching before events or like maybe even some plyometrics. Some people talked about, their calves would cramp and then they start training calves in the gym and they won't get cramped. Like literally like the stones left unturned. And like, that's not our, our area of expertise. I'm not going to go deep down that rabbit hole and talk about it. Cause I, I don't know my stuff when it comes to that. But like, I always think there's other things to consider. Um, thinking of like some kind of novel options that like, if we're looking for stuff that can work, what would you be looking at in terms of like supplements or stuff like that, that you could try?
1: Yeah, so there's definitely not a lot of supplements and there's definitely no one quick magic fix to cramping, which is unfortunate. But one thing you might want to try is something like pickle juice.
0: The way pickle juice can help is it it's basically like an agonist or it acts on like transient receptor potential ion channels. So these channels are located on the membranes of the sensory nerves in the mouth, and ingestion of something like pickle juice it seems to attenuate cramps through a bit of a neural reflex that's triggered by the acetic acid in the pickle juice. Basically, it triggers nerves in the mouth. That sends signals to spinal cords, which reduce motor neuron activity to the cramping muscle. Pickle juice isn't the only one that does this. Like, There's a few other products, like it seems like. Stuff that leaves like this really strong taste in your mouth, like really spicy stuff, seems to do it as well. Um, there's a product in America called Hotshot that Leah got me onto in terms of looking into. Do you want to talk about Hotshot at all? Do you know much about Hotshot?
1: Yeah, well, I know a lot about their research. Unfortunately, I don't know a lot about the the product. I think you know more about the ingredients than I do, but they are definitely one of the lead researchers in this space in creating this particular uh, product. Um, And there is some research to suggest that not only can it – stop cramping once it is starting to occur or reduce the time that that cramp is around, but it may actually prevent cramping for a period of time, which is interesting because you don't realistically see that in research for pickle juice. I've only ever seen that in research from... Um. Hot shot, From hot shot yeah. yeah.
0: So, their, their kind of argument is that there's multiple TRP, so transient receptor potential channels, and pickle juice only works on one of them. Whereas the ingredients in hot shot, it's basically got um, capsaicin and cinnamon and a few other things in there, which work on multiple channels overall. And that's one of their arguments. And even with pickle juice, it's pretty hit and miss. Like, it's kind of like, like, this is one of the ones where I'm like, the research is mixed. But if you're somebody who struggles with cramping, it's worth a crack. It's It's definitely worth a try. Yeah. And on that topic, like there's one study that um, we we both looked at recently that had 11 participants. And it was based on like, it was like electrically induced cramps. And there seemed to be no difference between the pickle juice and just having water, I'm pretty sure. Like there's no difference in that. Whereas in other studies, it seems like a game changer. It seems like a, but it's the same for hotshot as well. It seems like a game changer at like 30 seconds and the cramp's gone. Like it seems to be, at least in some of these studies, there's a reduction in the duration. Sometimes there's a reduction in the intensity of cramping and stuff like that. And like, that's what I was saying. Like, oh, sometimes I'm not like fully focused on the research, like in terms of it being like, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. Like it's worth just trying for yourself. Like there's times I've used it with clients and they're like, yeah, 30 seconds and the cramp was gone. And I don't know how much is placebo. Placebo probably plays a role, um, but as I said, it's worth trying. And the same thing for um, the research seems more positive for reducing the cramp once it's it's set in, and that makes sense with the transient receptor potential kind of channels kind of like mechanism. But as as you said with Hotshot, like it also it might have potential to reduce the likelihood of cramps occurring at all which is relevant for someone who's cycling. It's kind of hard to have your pickle juice while, while you're cycling. Like, you can do it, and if you were in desperate need, it makes sense to do it, obviously. But... You'd prefer to just be able to have a product before you cycle that lasts a couple of hours. Yeah. And that's what that's what Hotshot claims. But they they don't say it's magical or anything like that. And the one thing I'm always skeptical of is it's obviously industry-funded kind of research. Like it's um their kind of governing organization or whatever they call it, Flex Pharma. It's like the parent company. Mm -hmm. That's what does all their research. That's what funds all their research. Um they they claim that they and I I haven't actually read this one, but they, they claim that they have published a study that was not in favour of their product once and all of the other stuff they've published has been in favour. So they're they're using it as an example of them being honest, I guess, and, like, showing all that. But I'm always sceptical of um, publication bias. I'm always sceptical of the fact, I'm like, you've got a product to sell. Like, you want it to look like it works. Well, they want
1: to sell products. They want to make money. So it would make sense that anything that is in favour of their product that would be worth publishing and maybe not so much for things that are not in favour. Yeah. So you never know.
0: Yeah. And the way I look at it myself, I'm like, if I was an elite athlete and I cramped every second race, as an example, and that was what was holding me back, I would be trying this. Um, Team USA uses um, Hotshot. There's a few, like particularly in America, companies that they do it. It's harder to get in Australia, but you can just order it online. There's a section on their website that you can order it from. In Australia, personally, if I wasn't like too sold on Hotshot, like I wasn't convinced it was better, I'd just get pickle juice. Like, that's pretty easy to access. And I would just use it, if I wasn't fully sold on the potential of... Um, preventing cramps, I would just use it at the onset of a cramp and just see what happens and see if it helps.
1: So the next thing that you would want to have a look at in regards to stopping or preventing cramps is, is the electrolyte uh, and hydration theory. So whilst training and being prepared and possibly having something like pickle juice or hotshot, is going to potentially be beneficial if your cramp is caused from muscular fatigue. It's not necessarily going to help if your cramp is being caused by dehydration or a lack of electrolytes. So you still want to be mindful that that is a potential uh, risk factor in in the onset of cramps. So in regards to hydration, generally you want to avoid losing more than 2% of your body weight uh, in a particular training session or event. So that's a good guideline to use there. You can weigh yourself pre your training session and post your training session to get an idea of generally the amount of fluids that you do lose. And if you are losing more than 2%, perhaps you have a better focus on on adequate fluid intake during your sessions.
0: Yeah, I'll cut in and just like add in a little bit on hydration as well, because that is one of those ones that like usually drinking to thirst can address that, but it doesn't always address that. Um, if you routinely re- like lose more than that, it makes sense to try harder to drink a little bit more. But beyond that, something that I always want to add when we talk about this, because that's my advice as well. I'm always like, yeah, try and maintain, because we know that if you lose more than 2%, performance does drop off. But the caveat I want to add is that marathon runners, the winners, typically seem to lose more than 3% of body weight. And when we are aware of that happening, it's like this This isn't a hard and fast rule. It's kind of like you, you strive for that, but like if the winners are doing that and part of the reason they're winning is because they're not stopping... Um, slowing down their their stride so that they can drink and everything like that. That's worth being aware of as well, and that also feeds back into why the whole like electrolyte hydration kind of imbalance theory isn't like because the people who are winning are the ones who are getting a little bit more dehydrated as well. Like it's it's a fascinating one too. Yeah, so they're
1: not necessarily the ones that are cramping the f- like first. Yeah, even though they are losing more fluids perhaps than, than yeah. other people.
0: But once again, like what if you're just more prone to cramping? Like it's it's worth paying attention to. Like if somebody is cramping all the time, I'd consider that for sure. I'd be looking at that and another thing that i wanted to add on to that is there are different forms of cramps as well in terms of it seems like whole body cramps where like multiple areas of the body at once are getting cramps at the same time seem to be even more related to the electrolyte dehydration kind of imbalance theory whereas the isolated like one quad is cramping for example seems to be even more to the neuromuscular fatigue theory and the only reason i'm really adding that in there is just because it's like if you're like one of the rare few people who are getting these whole body cramps you can be even more confident that this is important, this section is a little bit more important for you. Um, anything you want to touch on that or do you want to talk about electrolytes and what we would do with that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of kind of almost diagnosing why the cramps are occurring or could be a good, a good place to start. Um, so sodium and focusing on electrolytes could potentially reduce your risk of cramping. So the general guidelines are: so having 0.6 to 1 gram of sodium per liter of fluids that you're intaking, then that te- that seems to be a pretty good target. Um, anything more than that's probably a bit overkill, uh, and anything less, you know, there's more potential that you that you may cramp due to a, an electrolyte and fluid imbalance. Most sports drinks and sports gels, so most of the products on the market are going to cover this quite well. So most things like Gatorade, Powerade your cliff shots, they're all going to contain roughly this amount of sodium. So it's not something you have to go out of your way to, to do other than just utilise these products.
0: Yeah, and including that as well, this is where it becomes relevant for the, I guess you call it anecdotal evidence for sodium really mattering and electrolytes and stuff like that really mattering because it say your average Joe takes up running or something like that, endurance activity. And they go out and they don't take anything with them. They don't take gels. They don't take sports drinks. They don't do anything like that. And they build up to some serious case. Like they start doing a lot of work or maybe they do take water. They're able to drink when they're out, but they build up to doing some serious work and all they do is drink water. They probably end up in that similar situation to what I was talking about earlier about those hot baths and stuff like that, where it's like massive sweat rate, sweat rate, sweat rate is through the roof, only drinking water. And then there's this massive imbalance. And then suddenly they add salt to the drink or whatever. Like, they, they find a solution and it solves it. And then suddenly they're going around telling everyone that sodium is the key to cramping. But it was, it's just that, like, extreme situation that they've put themselves into that has really caused their cramping. So, like, even though I'm like, oh, it's anecdotal, it also, like, it makes sense how that could happen in practice as well and why people start thinking sodium is the key as well.
1: Sure, you definitely understand why that anecdotal evidence has, has come about, but it's not necessarily the key to everybody's cramps where you know it could be a mix of, of things contributing.
0: The next thing we want to talk about is magnesium. So this is an interesting one for me personally, cause I'm not gonna name the company or anything like that, but a company um, hired me to do videos promoting their sports gels. And because I'm a believer in sports gels being effective for a variety of reasons and stuff like that for insurance activity, um, I was down for that, so I was keen. And they had their standard sports gel, which is pretty standard. I'm like, yeah, of course I'll promote that." And then they had another one that was a gel that contained magnesium. And I was being paid for this opportunity, so I had incentive to be like, "Yeah, magnesium is the best. It's going to prevent cramps. It's going to like, it's going to improve performance. All these kind of things." And I really dug into the research before that opportunity, obviously, and I couldn't find anything. <laughs> like, I couldn't find any research. Showing that magnesium supplementation reduced cramps, um, that was really interesting to me because like I'd heard it, I heard everyone saying it, I heard all this stuff going on. There is a lot of anecdotal evidence of people including magnesium. There is a theoretical mechanism of why it could help, because if you look at the mechanisms of how magnesium works, it makes sense. But that then just goes back to the key point of like. Blood levels of magnesium are not often to be deficient. People can have an inadequate intake. They can have a suboptimal intake of magnesium, the nutrient, but their blood levels are not necessarily low, so they're not deficient, and it's doing its job in the body, even if they're not having an optimal level of it. So from the research perspective, whenever they've gotten large groups and they've tried to induce cramps and stuff like that and they've tried to use magnesium to stop it, it hasn't made any difference. But I, in some cases with anecdotal evidence and stuff like that, when I'm of the opinion where I'm like, it's not going to hurt, and if you truly believe it works, it makes sense to go for it. Like if, if you cramped every time you ran and then you took a magnesium and it stopped it, I'd, I'd continue. Like that would be what I would do in that situation. It's just that it's not like research supported or anything at this stage. But I don't know. If it works, I'd go for it and yeah. it can't hurt really.
1: Yeah. And if, if I have clients that come to me and they're like, I have started taking magnesium and it's really helped, I'm not going to tell them to stop taking it. Not I'm not, not going to go yeah, out of exactly. my way to go, you know, oh, stop taking it because it's not going to cause them any harm. And if they think it's contributing to preventing cramps or improving performance, then it is what it is. Kind of like BCAAs, like you'll yeah, yeah. just continue letting that client take it if they think it's helping.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the next thing we want to talk about is Hyperhydration some stuff you can do around that. Cause if we're trying to prevent that 2% kind of body weight loss, if possible, maybe even being more hydrated at the start of the event or the start of the training session, start of the race or whatever could help. Um, did you want to talk about glycerol? You'll know more about that than I do.
1: Yeah. Glycerol is an interesting one. I have to say it's only something that I've come to learn about recently. like at least, you know, looked into the research around it and how people use it. Um, in general, like hyperhydration can be effective to prevent dehydration during an event and glycerol can be effective in that it does help you retain more water than what your cells naturally would. So that if you take glycerol in conjunction with a decent fluid intake, Prior to an event, you're going to hold on to a, a greater percentage of that water uh, in your cells, and then have more of that available to you during an event. So you can basically have a greater loss of of water weight during an event or a session, um, and it's not going to affect you as much as if you you weren't hyperhydrated. So glycerol can work quite well in that in doing that. But the issue I have with glycerol is how you actually take it. So it's not something that I've dabbled in or or convinced my clients to do because it's not actually a sports supplement. Or you can't buy it as a sports supplement. It's actually like a topical like cream or gel almost. So I'm I'm very skeptical about telling clients to take something like that that's not made for consumption. Generally, how do you feel about it?
0: Yeah, so like the fact that it says on there like not made for human consumption is a bit scary. Um, To be honest, I've ordered some myself that should be arriving soon. Because every time I recommend something, I want to take it, like, just to see what it's like. Apparently, it helps you get a sick pump when you're lifting as well. (laughs) Which is always nice. Yeah. So, like, I'm like, worst case scenario for me, like, I'll try it and I'll go lift and get a sick pump, see some veins. That'll be nice. Um, And that way, I'll be more comfortable telling other people to consume it if I've done it myself. But, yeah, at this stage, I've never recommended it to a client. But I'm like, I'm aware it exists. It could be helpful. If somebody was really struggling with cramps and they were trying everything, it'd be worth chucking that into the mix as well. And I guess speaking on that as well, if we're coming back to the concept of this mostly being related to fatigue, something that could help, this isn't an evidence-based take or anything like that, it's just a bit of common sense to a certain degree, like thinking it through, is fueling well in general. We know that doing little things like if it's a long event, like carb loading, or if it's just a standard session, just like having a good pre-workout meal or something like that, or maybe having intra-race or intra-workout carbs or whatever, if it is something that you're really going to cramp in or something like that, um, could make you be able to perform better. It could improve performance. But that could also mean that you're doing the same work for less fatigue as well. So theoretically speaking, nailing your fueling in general just nailing your overall nutrition could improve your ability to but just improve your work capacity in general, and then that could carry over to a reduced risk of cramps. Is there anything else you want to touch on or do you reckon that's it?
1: Yeah. Even following on from that, I think, I guess just a brief mention on anything that helps reduce fatigue and improve recovery. So even things like sleep. So it really comes down to all those day-to-day habits that you can do to reduce fatigue in general is likely going to help with cramping
0: perfect so once again thank you to everybody who has listened please subscribe please leave a rating and review um we always appreciate that and if you're still listening it's episode four we definitely appreciate that too so thank you